0: Hello, this is Mary Cole and the Good Story Podcast, helping writers craft a good story. With me, you will hear from thought leaders related to writing, and sometimes not, about topics important to writers of all categories and ability levels. Here is to telling a good story. Hello, this is Mary Cole with Good Story Podcast, and for today's episode, we have a little bit of a different format for you. It's not just an interview with one person; it is an interview with two aspiring writers uh, who I have sort of crossed paths with. Uh, one was a webinar student, and one a client of mine. Um, and th- this all came uh, this this came up because. I was talking about a specific writing tool, The Emotional Thesaurus, so A Writer's Guide to Character Expression by Angela Ackerman and uh, Becca Paglisi, And they have a whole series of these books, but internally at Good Story, we have been sort of arguing a little bit about The Emotion Thesaurus. And I did a webinar on First Pages and my first guest, Patricia, who will introduce herself in a moment, chimed in and said, guys, this is a really great resource. And I was I am so ashamed to admit a little bit rude about it. I was like, Oh, yeah, it's just a list of synonyms for emotions. Um, because my, posi- my uninformed position at the time was that it would, uh, you know, sort of lead to some cliches, which was my, um, my worry. And she really opened my eyes to how she uses it. And then the same day it came up in conversation with this other client, Rick. And I said, Mary, this is hitting you over the head. This is a resource that you've heard so much about. This is worth exploring. So we are going to have a conversation today about the emotion thesaurus um, kind of on a granular level. And then on a macro level, we are going to talk about writing tools and whether creative writing or creative human input can ever be replaced by tools. So it's going to be kind of a weird one, but I am so excited. My guests today are Patricia Faithful and Rick Williams. Patricia, why don't you introduce yourself first?
1: Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me uh, uh, to this podcast. Um, uh, yeah, we had a great time on, on your uh, w- uh, webinar the other day. And uh, yes, it, it's been a very uh, interesting uh, road to get to uh, discussing this particular topic. I'm I'm a writer and I have been, well, I think most of my life, um, I have dedicated the last uh, five years or so to really pursuing it uh, on a professional level. I, um, I originally trained as an actor at the Neighborhood Playhouse uh, School of the Theater in New York. Uh, and then I lived in Europe for a while, and then I came back to Canada. Um, still kept writing the whole time, uh, but mostly in screenplay, actually not in prose. And uh, then I um, started writing in prose. And I'm an agented author. Uh, Rosemary Stimola at uh, Stimola Liter- Literary Studio is my agent. And I am unsold, but I'm still pursuing, obviously, the dream of uh, of having the sale and uh, hopefully on a you know series c- uh, capability. And uh, that's that's who I am. And uh, thank you very much for having me today.
0: Of course. And that is wonderful. Rosemary is great. I am so happy to hear it. And Rick, why don't you give us a quick introduction to who you are and where you're coming from?
2: Well, thanks for allowing me to participate. I am a business executive, so I may be approaching these things in a bit of a business-like way. But anyways, I'm retired. And during during my years of work, I took sabbaticals to write books. So I wrote and had successfully published two American history books. So I have seven grandkids nearby. So the oldest, two years ago, who was eight at the time, Brady, decided that he and I should write a book together. And I said, okay. I said, what are we going to write about? He said, we're going to write a book about dragons and dinosaurs. And I said, in the same book? And he said, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So that's how this all started. The adventure with Rick and his grandson. So... um, I guess I would call it, again, an epic fantasy adventure, which wasn't my forte because I was spending a lot of time writing thrillers. So I would call his version of this, The Lord of the Rings meets Jurassic Park and Wings of Fire. So somehow I've got to figure out how to put that into a manuscript. (laughs) So it started off as a family and friends indie book, and we did um, a lot of different imagineering. And uh, about a year ago, maybe six months ago, I had six mid-grade beta readers go through it, and they liked it. And I gave gave them a 40-page questionnaire. I guess that shows I'm a business executive. So I gave them a 40-page questionnaire, but I paid them. But anyways, and uh, they, they showed the things that they thought were good, things that needed work. And by the time we were done, they said, you ought to write a trilogy about this. And then I decided, well, maybe there's commercial potential. So anyway, so I hired a local Disney author last summer to restructure the story. And then I have a, what I think I have more as a business advisor, Jane Friedman. So I was talking to Jane in September and I said, well, who is a top expert at getting kid lit projects commercial ready? She said, well, that would be my friend, Mary Cole. Let me refer you. (laughs) So anyway, so that's how this started. So we started working together about six months ago. And Mary's just done a spectacular job of taking my writing to a new level. And which she doesn't know, this will be the big reveal. I have a Mary Cole notebook that I keep that's in there. (laughs) And I keep track of all of our, all of of the insights that I get. And now I'm going through the blueprints course. But anyways, no, it's been a great ride. And uh, again, Mary, you've had a great impact on trying to take my writing to the next level, which I greatly appreciate.
0: Well, Rick, I am so flattered. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you both for the introductions. So I just want, I'm holding a copy of the motion thesaurus in my hot little hands here. And for those who have not heard of it, um, I just want to describe real quick before Patricia dives in what this tool is. And so it's set up very much like a dictionary or an encyclopedia with entries. Each one is a spread. And uh, if I open up to say the emotion of elation, I'm a writer, I wanna convey elation. So I have um, definition, physical signs, sorry, physical signals and behaviors, and then a list, um, you know, like dancing in place, Internal sensations, racing heartbeat, mental responses, um, gratitude, and thought scattering. Being being too excited to think straight. Acute or long term responses. This is interesting. So this gets like really into the nitty gritty. Loss of motor control, tears streaming down the face. Um, signs that this emotion is being suppressed, which I think is super interesting. Looking down to hide a grin. Um, then may escalate to like euphoria. May de-escalate to satisfaction. Um, and associated power verbs, which I love. Uh, So like beam, boast, um, that sort of thing. And so basically what this does is there are 130 entries here of all of these emotions. So when we want to write emotions as writers, which we definitely do, we can come to this resource and sort of pick through some of the associated behaviors, associated words, that sort of thing. Um, Now, I will refrain from my commentary on it, which originally got me into this whole mess with Patricia during the webinar. And I just want, Patricia has been so lovely to prepare um a use case for you. She's going to talk you through that now. I can't wait.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So yes, um, that was a great uh, explanation as to how the book is laid out kind of on that two page spread, like one per emotion and 130 different emotions. And I think the hardest thing as a writer in prose is that you, you have to write the emotion because that's the connection between the writer and the reader, but you actually can't say the emotion. It's like this, it's like this magic trick that we do as writers. It's like we want to convey the emotion, but we can't say that that this is the emotion that we're dealing with. So this book gives you those those um uh, kind of those categories, right? Where you can actually you know decide whether you want to show a physical sign, an intern or 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 talk about an internal uh sensation, a mental response. Um, and then, you know, prolong that as an acute or long term response. And then, and then chapters later, choose something to escalate to or deescalate to depending on your plot. So, so that was a great introduction, the way you did that. Thank you very much. Um, so I think what I what the, the what I'd like to do is, is show uh, is show how this would be used. So I chose a text. That was actually that actually predates the publication of this book because my point is that the author that I'm going to uh, share a uh, an excerpt from would never have used this uh, this particular uh, resource, but this resource is invaluable because. Um, the way she constructs this particular excerpt, um, you can easily kind of look at it um, as uh, as Rick would say, kind of reverse engineered. Like you would you would you would basically be able to see how how she had wound these things into the text without without having this resource, and 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 therefore why this resource would be valuable. So the the text is uh, written by um, a woman named Mary Hershey, and it was published in two thousand and eight. And it's called, uh, the book is called 10 Lucky Things That Have Happened to Me Since I Nearly Got Hit by Lightning. And it is a, a middle grade text. And it is from a 10-year-old girl. So uh, the setup is that um, Effie keeps a list of the 10 of the luckiest things that happened uh, to her on her fridge. And in this excerpt, she is finally allowed to have a sleepover for the first time. And she's planned it on St. Patrick's Day and in honor of her best friend, Aurora, who has just moved to a new school. So in this section of the text, and it's three quarters of the way through the book, Aurora, her best friend, is about to back out of attending. So you can already get a sense of what that's going to mean to the main character, Effie. So I'm just going to quickly read the uh, the text. Uh, fancy, i sorry, uh, Aurora went on. Is there any way that you could move your party to another night? No, I've already sent out the invitations and everyone is coming. This is terrible. I couldn't believe it. Well, could you at least come for the sleepover part? You know, when you get back from Houston and could Fancy's mom bring you over here? Aurora was quiet a minute and then said, Well, Fancy wants me to have a sleepover with her afterwards. This was just getting worse. All the team or just you? She cleared her throat and then said in a small voice, just me. But you said no, right? Please, Aurora, tell me you said no. I have haven't exactly said no yet. I wanted to talk to you first. I hate to say no to her, F. She's kind of lonely and I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Plus it's her birthday and all. And I mean if it was your birthday, I wouldn't even think about going to her house kind of lonely. Oh no, she was trying to get Aurora to be her new best friend. Effie, how about this? You have your fun, cool party, and I'll go to my party and my team, and I'll do the sleepover with Fancy just to be polite. But then next week, you and Nick can come over for a sleepover. We can do all the same games and everything. That would be almost as good, wouldn't it? I felt like I was going to cry, but I didn't want to do that in front of her. Effie, are you still there? Please don't be sore at me. I'm not, I said my voice a tight knot, but I need to go. My mama's waving me to come help with her in the kitchen. What about dinner tonight, she asked. What time should I come? Oh gosh, did I say tonight? I meant next week. I'm getting things so confused with all the party planning and shopping. Sorry, I'll talk to you later. Bye. I clicked the phone off as much as I had wanted her to come over. I was not in the mood to be an understanding best friend. I watched the picture in my head of my party as it burst into flame and went right up in smoke, bright green, St. Patrick's day smoke. Where the heck had all my good luck gone? I grabbed a black magic marker from the drawer under the phone and went over to my list of lucky things. I slashed a line right through number eight. My good luck had just gone South. Oh, I love this. I love that you chose
0: this and um so i think i want to piggyback on a point that you made in your sort of introduction to this excerpt that you chose which is so you have a screenwriting background and there we have all of these tools at our disposal um because we're imagining this being acted by actual people who have tone of voice in their toolbox they have uh body language, facial expression, all of this stuff in their toolbox. And those are the ways in which we humans are used to sort of reading, quote unquote, the emotions of other humans. And so you don't have to necessarily do so much writing into how a person is displaying or uh, or sort of creating the emotion for readers. In a novel, that is the work that we're doing. We do not have access to an actor uh, who is going to act out all of the emotions that we're putting on the page, and we have to do it, and there are so many ways to do it. Like you said, it's sort of like... um what is it, catchphrase or, uh oh, taboo, the word that you're not supposed to say. You can't say, you know, she felt disappointed. You have to kind of twist yourself into a pretzel and have her like X out the line on her list. Um, And so there are so many opportunities in this excerpt for different portrayals of emotion. So I am just super stoked. I cannot wait to hear you break it down.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, so what I really, again, loved about this was that this this writer is quite masterful in this uh, enterprise. And uh, so what I want to look at is the three different um, aspects that I really like about the Emotional Thesaurus book, which is the mental responses, the internal sensations, and the behaviors. So when I just think about just that, you know, that little bit there, she had, um, I've listed here, uh, actually four mental responses. This was terrible. I couldn't believe it. The second one, this was just getting worse. The third one, I watched the picture in my head of what my party as of my party as it burst into bright St. Patrick's Day smoke, and then the fourth one is, uh, you know, she hung up the phone, but her thought process would have been she wanted to be alone. All of those things, from a mental response perspective, you know, make us believe that she is quite devastated. Um, and then when you uh, look at what the internal sensations are you know, she didn't say, you know, she felt a tear. She just says, I felt like I was going to cry, but I didn't want to do that in front of her. And she also says, my voice, um, it went into a tight knot, which is, you know, there's the cliche of, you know, I swallowed hard, you know, but that, you know, she uses my voice is a tight knot, which is not cliche and, and really, you know, kind of really uh, uh, illustrates the point. And then for her behaviors, she clicked off the phone, she slashed a line through number eight, because her good luck was not with her. And, and, then, and then she even ups her game at, at kind of towards the end and, and she uses the suppressed emotion. She says, Oh gosh, did I say I invited you over tonight? No, I met next week. And that's really kind of feigning a kind of a false, putting on a false front, right? Like, I'm not going to let her know that this has really affected me this badly. Um, so she uses all of those, um, those very um, subtle ways of using the prose. Um, broken down into those different categories to really convey that emotion without saying, you know, because she could have, you know, at at the end of the conversation, she said, well, I talked to her about it and then I was really disappointed, right? Which is not (laughs) how you write, right? You have to, you have to, you have to draw it out, right? So when I, so I kind of broke it down the way the the book does, um, and in the book, in the, in the actual book, kind of like I retrofitted it, right? So under disappointment, um, you know, her feelings were of dread and, and she had de- defeatish, de- defeatful kind of thoughts. And she had this hopelessness of watching this party go up in smoke, um, you know, her eyes were watering. She wanted to be alone. And then she kind of offered that false cheer and, and she did it in a way that was true to her story and true to her characters. So it's not like this material is going to be, I don't know, like cliched. If you just like, as we were talking earlier, just kind of like drag and drop, like you can, but you can also expand it and make it very specific to your character's circumstances. And it was just done so artfully in that particular passage that, uh, I thought it would be a great way to just illustrate it. And, and that's, that's why I love the emotion thesaurus and I use it on a regular basis.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I do love that you were able to sort of take something that was published before this, this resource became available and, uh, reverse engineer, as you said, um, your way into some of these things that I am finding on the disappointment page because I started looking, um, Now, I think that what launches us into our bigger discussion, Patricia, is what you said about it has to fit the character. And that is really my argument against this resource. Uh, And I was very honest with you when I sort of said, you know, oh, Patricia, I was super rude about this resource that you recommended. I said, I haven't actually read it. So of course, I tucked my tail between my legs and I dutifully ordered my copy because I'd been hearing so much about it. And so my, my hesitation with it, and I'm not sure it's founded uh, or not, um, whether it's founded or not, is that drag and drop thing that you identified, because some of these things... You're right. In this book, the emotions really, really fit the character. We get that middle grade voice. We get these sort of gestures and these thoughts and kind of this false cheer thing that is very consistent with kind of this middle grade girl character that doesn't believe that her luck is sort of piling up, right? <laughs> she she feels like she's short on luck. And so a lot of these things are really consistent. But my worry, and this is where Rick, I'd like to bring you in in a second. Is this sort of like, I don't want somebody to sit there and write a novel by box ticking. And so an example of that would be, hey, I'm writing a scene that calls for disappointment. Okay, physical signs and behaviors. Okay, a heavy sigh and, you know, wincing. Okay, great. And some of these, you know, are just a little bit strange in the thesaurus. I mean, there's so many different things here. Like, for example, um, stumbling mid-stride for disappointment. You know, they they have all kinds of things for you to choose from. It's meant to be very comprehensive. But what I don't want a writer to do is to just say, okay, the scene calls for disappointment. Okay, we get the lump in the throat. Perfect. And we get this. And they're not really sort of making sure it integrates with their voice, their character choices, all of that they just sort of make themselves a list check all these boxes think that they've done disappointment and then they move on um and either they keep using the same five signals for disappointment no matter who the character is or what the situation is or they jump all over the place um for the sake of variety you know (laughs) and soon their characters look like marionettes who are performing all of these uh you know actions that correlate with various emotions but is that shortchanging the reader and shortchanging the sort of nuance and depth that, um, that we'd love to see in our stories? So that was sort of my position. Patricia, why don't you respond? And then, uh, we'll, we'll go to Rick for that because he has some really interesting thoughts. So Patricia, what are you thinking here?
1: Yeah, I totally. I, yeah, I totally uh, see where you're coming from. Obviously, if you could just, you know, uh, if you had a plot line and and you just wanted to you know, drag and drop, you know, some some of these behaviors, and it's gonna it's gonna read as flat as if you didn't, right? Like it's just it's just not gonna fit. Like there, there is there is an there is an art to writing. There is a style to writing. There is a, there is a sense of, of 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 people and you know what's age appropriate and culturally appropriate and what's you know all of those things that you know, that have to fit into the, the, into the, into the prose and into the story and into the character. And it, it, it's really hard to even articulate how many different ways those, ha- those things have to integrate. Um, and, but I do, I I do fully uh, see what your point is as an editor. If people think that they can just, you know, do that and, and drag and drop it's, it, it, it doesn't work. But what, I think what I love about the, about the, having the variety of being able to choose is it's also a, a place to leap off with your imagination to go, oh, that's what it is, because there are emotions here that we all haven't experienced, right? And yes, some of the basic ones, you know, like, you know, guilt, shame, disappointment, elation. I mean, we've all experienced those, but I haven't grieved for someone in a very long time. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever felt neglected, right? So there are there are certain emotions where I don't know if I wanted to write that character, what's my way in? Like what's my way into that character, right? And I'm not a psychologist, so I, I don't know. So I would really use this, um, you know, for those for those types of um, for those types of purposes.
0: And one thing I do love about it is that psychological, so um, acute or long term responses for this emotion and signs that this emotion is being suppressed. I really like that one because you could play. With it a lot, um, and you know, uh, congrat so disappointment. congratulating the victor um, makes a lot of sense and is very subtle. See, I I like subtle. I don't like kind of this like one size fits all approach. I really like subtle, and so that does tickle me um, in in terms of my rubric for how a tool like this might be useful. So I completely take your point. Now let's bring Rick on. He's been sitting so patiently. <laughs> so what was how did we get started talking about this, Rick, during that fateful phone call?
2: So I'm going to do a little quick backstory. So um, I was, again, we were at that point where we had a good, we had a good book, good solid book, but I had focused, because it's an epic fantasy, more on the outer world, right? So we had spent a lot of time on the complex plots and subplots, the world building, my grandson's crazy creatures, (laughs) I'm a military writer, so lots of action. So I thought we were in pretty good shape. So then I had my first call with Mary Cole, and I looked it up on Friday morning at 11 o'clock on October 9th. And I thought I was doing pretty good. So anyway, so that's where I would go into the inner world. (laughs) And so Mary began to immediately go into the characterization because I've created, since I'm a crazy business guy, a more complex situation because I should have just wrote about one protagonist in first person. But I've got three cousin, middle grade protagonists between 13, 14, 15. And Mary began to home in on how I was differentiating the characters. Then the dichotomy again of being a kid, but wanting to be independent. And then getting into the emotions because I've got time travel in my book. So she wanted to know why these kids were time traveling.
0: Yes. (laughs) A lot going on.
2: I didn't really care. I just wanted to get them to the new world. So uh, anyway, so interestingly, after that session, I must've been inspired because I went to my first bookstore in six months during the lockdown. And I came across this book that I'm holding that's called Quintessence. And it's not a book that I personally necessarily would have bought. But anyways, but, but I was kind of attracted because my book has an astronomy element to it. And this has an astronomy element about a humanized falling star. But then when I read about the author, I realized that the author was a psychologist. So I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting combination. I need to to learn about the inner world. So I bought this book, and I would say, you know, you get to those times in your writing journey, this was just a game changer for me, because it came on the heels of the discussions with Mary Cole. I then went and began to study Mary's book, but specifically from the inner world. Then I went to uh, Donald Moss's Emotional Craft of Fiction, and I thought I was making pretty good progress until I had another session with Mary. <laughs> so we had multiple sessions. Oh, anyway, so my, my writing partner figured that I was emotionally challenged. So she gave me the emotion thesaurus about a month ago. So I was writing, I had I had to come up with, you know, who, who would be crazy enough to spend two years writing a book and then Mary has the person go back to write a brand new chapter one. So that's, that's rather strange. So I'm, I'm writing this brand new chapter one and revising chapter two. So I decided, since I'm emotionally challenged, I will use the emotion thesaurus. <laughs> <laughs> so then, when I got Mary's critique back, <laughs> a couple places, she she had I, I called. I, I think I said she said to me, "Your emotional descriptions seem like cut and paste." And then I responded, "You busted me because that's exactly right because I use <laughs> the emotion thesaurus." <laughs> so that's what I call the emotion thesaurus confession. So I said. No, you're exactly right. That's what I did. And so anyways, obviously, I, I didn't use it quite as artfully as Patricia. <laughs> but anyways, so that that's the backstory. And that that's a whole different topic. Because then that got us into my other world, which is I advise in artificial intelligence. And so I've spent uh, four years advising one of the top life science universities in the world and one of the top computer science universities in the world trying to take their high tech and bring it to solve problems for kids with rare diseases. So I've been doing that for four years. And then I'm now starting, we we spun off a company. So I'm helping friends advise this company. So then Mary knew that I was doing that. So then she starts asking me, well, do you think that a computer will ever take the place of an editor? And I said, I don't think so. So that's how we got into that discussion. So I think the the, the inner world to me is the part that was deficient in my book. And I think that this has been profoundly helpful to figure out how best to take it to the next level. The question is, how do you do it? <laughs> and so, and obviously, obviously, what I found out, it's not cutting and pasting. And then you'll hear my AI world, I talk talk more about find and replace. And so, so it's not find and replace. But I think, Mary, you push me to think about digging deeper, as you've just talked about, keeping it in context and fitting that that character mosaic. So I've got more work to do. So anyway, so that's my backstory on on the inner world.
0: (laughs) Well, I so now I want to build a bridge between this tool and kind of this larger topic of tools. So I'm going to talk for a bit and hopefully it'll make a little bit of sense. And then I would love to hear from both of my esteemed guests here. So I read in 2007, and I'm not sure when this book came out, but I have the, I have about 87 tabs open on my browser at any given time because I'm always thinking of like 17 different things. So, the bestseller code by Matthew L. Jockers and Jody Archer. It came out in 2016. I read it about a year later because one of my other clients. So I. I love that I'm always getting inspired by like little conversations that I have here and there. And sometimes they come together into a podcast episode. Um, so this client said, Hey, I read the bestseller code. Um, and I'm applying it. Right. So this, this client was very interested in sort of doing this fiction by the numbers sort of approach. And what the bestseller code is. Is this Matthew Jockers guy, uh, one of the authors of it, he basically developed a proprietary algorithm. And this algorithm scanned, you know, he kind of fed it, fed through um, a lot of these best-selling novels, you know, your Dan Brown's, all of these, um, all of these projects that, you know, people would really want to emulate. And he came up with a bunch of findings, which you can read in the book, um, of kind of what tends to correlate. Positively or negatively, with sort of bestseller status in, um, in a book and or in a manuscript. And what he's actually doing now is called Marlow AI, um, based on this proprietary uh, algorithm that he designed for this project. So he kind of did it privately, and then he kind of made it into a company. So Marlow belongs to Authors AI. And it's an analytical software for novels that is based on this kind of research that was first published in um the bestseller code. And uh so uh including people including Jane Friedman, um, our, our buddy, uh have gotten to sort of take a crack at it, and now it's sort of becoming available to publishers, to agencies, and to individual writers. And you can, you know, upload your manuscript into Marlowe and it will sort of analyze. Structure, analyze character, analyze writing style, you know, your sentence length. One of the, one of my favorite parts from the bestseller code that I took away from and I use to shame people about semicolons is that the more semicolons you use, the less likely your book is to be a bestseller. (laughs) That was one of the very granular insights that they gleaned, uh, by developing this algorithm. Um, for what it's worth, you know, and, and this is where this is where we run right into this problem of, okay, I I sleep very well at night because I don't personally think that in these soft humanities like writing, creative writing, character development, um, theme development, voice development, I do not think that we can um that AI is ever gonna be the monkey at the typewriter that comes up with Hamlet. Um, and I also don't think that tools like Marlowe AI um will replace the editorial vision or a literary agent's vision, a publisher's vision um, completely. I do maintain and think that that human element is really important. And same goes for tools like the emotion thesaurus. You can copy and paste, but then your friend Mary is going to call you out on it. You need a human filter to sort of apply the tips and tricks in here intelligently with the filter of your own story in mind. And so it's this idea of kind of what is the writer's role? Is the writer's role still primarily this creative development role, even though we have tools available to us to A, generate the writing, um, and B, uh, revise and give feedback on the writing. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to put to you guys. I know it's sort of, sort of a big nebulous question, but I'm really curious to see if either of you have, uh, have any thoughts in that direction.
1: So I do, I do see the value in certain um, types of tool sets. Like for example, like I write just with a regular word document, but I also purchased like a pro writing aid software and it gives me an analysis on a chapter by chapter basis when I'm, when I'm at that stage where I want to kind of, you know, start to like make things a little bit more solid and I can look at things like sentence length and, you know, diction and, uh, you know if I wanted a house style check or plagiarism, like not not that I would need to for plagiarism because I write fiction, but you know you want to make sure that you know if you were writing a, a paper that you did, um, it also offers um, like a check for you know proper grammar, overused words, repeat words, uh, too much alliteration, you know sticky sentences and that and that kind of stuff.
0: What is the software that you use, Patricia?
1: It's called Pro Writing Aid. Okay. Okay. It's very affordable, and it's a word plugin, so I love it for that. What that can't do for me, and I, I can't speak of how you know Scrivener or you know Dramatica Pro or this new Marlowe and how they work. They can't come up with the idea. They can't give me a character with a wound. They can't come up with a an inciting incident. Um, that will make my character and their wound, you know, be transported through, you know, act two to the climax, where they've been, you know, where there's a big twist in that middle there. Um, and then uh, have some kind of incredible disappointment at the, you know, uh, you know, at the end of act, uh, at the end of act two, or, and then and then take them, you know, straight through to a, you know, a climax, and then do a denouement that's satisfying that that I don't think can ever be done by AI. Can AI analyze that based on um, specific um, word choices and word selection? Yes. Um, Can AI see a climax, a proper, so I'll say a proper climax coming based on chapter length and sentence length? Yes. And if it's a middle grade um, or a YA, can AI identify things like appropriately used white space? Probably, um, <laughs> yeah. but but those are things that are um, identifiable in the uh, identifiable in the structure of the linguistics on the page, not part of the creative process or the character character psychology or plot development, which I don't believe can be made can be done by AI. That's my opinion, um, but I would I would love for Rick to try and change my mind. Or at least get a dialogue going. Yeah. Um,
2: Rick, what do you think? Well, Rick is not going to change your mind.
0: Ah!
2: (laughs) (laughs) But what a great discussion. Because about three months ago, I got pro writing aid. And I have been running around (laughs) talking to all my writing friends. I call it my proofreading parrot on my shoulder. Because I'll just do exactly what Patricia said. I'll just go through the chapter and all the stupid mistakes I made will show up. And, and out of my 50 chapters in the book, I've only had one chapter where I got through with no problems. But every other time, there's multiple mistakes. And they're not all mistakes. I mean, obviously, there's some ways to enrich or improve the project. But no, it's funny, Patricia, that that's what you've been using because I know nothing about any other writing tool online except that's the one I've been using, pro writing aid. So it sounds like we're both advertisements for pro writing aid. <laughs> So anyway, so my thought, um, if I could, I think that here's my view. Nature is typically nonlinear. So one of my favorite books is a book from a Duke professor called Design and Nature. And Mary, your your journey hasn't been linear. It doesn't sound like Patricia's has either. But most people I find that are entrepreneurs do not have linear journeys. And so then the question is, you know, what would constitute nonlinear? So in the book, this professor spent a lot of time researching nature, and it seems obvious once I say and it.
0: And creatives, I would say.
2: Yeah, but once I say it, you'll, you'll laugh because it seems pretty self-evident, but, but he's, he's done well with his book and his classes. But anyways, he, you know, he looks, again, at the, the tree branches and the tree roots, the Mississippi Delta, the lightning, and he pretty much goes through all of nature and finds very few straight lines. So then one of the parts that connects with my world, since I'm in the biotech world, is that the organ systems are, are typically examples of complex integrated networks. So we have the brain, we've got the heart, we've got the lungs. So can a, an AI approach replicate the brain? But well, we know in medicine, that's been a complete failure. And so while IBM's Watson did great on Jeopardy, it has failed to become a diagnostic for medicine at this point. So then I think about if nature is typically non-linear, then so is creative writing, right? So creative writing is like, to me, like the brain. It's a complex integrated story network. And nature fosters inspiration. Our life experience and memories amplify the creativity. But then there has to be some kind of multifactorial analysis and complex decision-making that drives the creative expression. So when I'm talking to my AI friends, obviously I'm, I'm advising for them, and this is their world, um, they agree that at this stage of the game, a computer is not going to make as complex of decision-making necessary for writing a book, or in his case, he's a musician. So the example we laughed about is that we don't know that a computer is going to create Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper, but we don't even know if they could recreate it. I mean, that's one of the things that's pretty funny about when everything comes together. But anyway, so... The next question I ask, can creative writing be automated? I think this is the trap that we've been falling into in these discussions, Mary, is that it's not just writing per se, right? So I have a friend who started a company where he took um, Fantasy League football games on Sunday and wrote summaries of them on Monday with a computer. And then that led to doing things for, you know, for Associated Press and Yahoo. But these are all pretty defined kind of collections of data, and then putting in some stories. This isn't writing a complex novel. So then I said to myself, well, can could Leonardo da Vinci, could you take his creativity and automate it? Obviously, we don't think so. Could a machine create the old man on the sea? Well, you know, it was a lifetime of work by Hemingway. And then one thing I read that one paragraph he revised 14 times. But a computer would go into that paragraph and rearrange it. Right. So I think there's still something different that Mary, what you do with me is not just rearranging, but it's enhancing and improving. So anyway, so, so then my net net of this is that authors must, you know, we as authors, and I think that's what Patricia and I are doing, are strategically trying to pick the right tool to use at the right time for the right application. So using Pro Writing Aid to polish up a chapter makes sense to me, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for editing. So so Mary when you think about editing how would you divide up the major categories of editing since you I consider you a strategic editor but how how would you divide them up
0: That is a fabulous question um so actually there is a Hemingway editor um is an editing app, speaking of Hemingway. So that's one of the editing apps that sort of looks at your sentence structure, kind of like pro writing aid. Um, So for editing, and I teach a workshop all about kind of self-editing for writers. And what I like to do there is this uh, funnel type of approach where you zoom out and you develop a a sort of... um, How would I call it? Like a mission statement for your work, your thematic note that you really want to hit. What is this work about at its most basic? level um and that can be story so dinosaurs ex dragons right but it can also be um character driven and i don't want to sort of publicly pick apart your project rick but you know something that the characters are hoping to learn or go through or their arc in sort of the most bare bones sense so your big thematic strokes and then what I would uh, what I would say the editor does is then we zoom in and we sort of look at every story component as it relates to what I believe the mission statement of the writer to be. And uh, writers can absolutely do this themselves. So, you know, I say, okay, this is their theme. This is sort of the non-negotiable elements that the story has to include. Now let's think about their structure. And does their structure take us from a to Z in sort of a compelling enough way that hits these notes. Now let's look at the character arc, the overall character arc. And so we have the, the big uh broad character elements of Patricia, you mentioned the wound, I would say the need, the objective, the motivation. So these sorts of reasons for the character doing what they're doing and the ways in which the character is driven um, forward through the story. Then we can zoom in a little bit further, go scene by scene. Does this scene serve the sort of the mission statement, the plot arc, the character arc? Um does this chapter serve it? Um, and then Obviously the sentence level editing is completely different. This is where we can get a lot of help from tools like ProWritingAid and what I'm seeing of uh you know Hemingway editor here um because a lot of these kind of you know overused words I uh, I got Rick with some of my word echo notes uh during our last round. Some of these things are easier to identify than the more creative piece that I just described kind of the top of the funnel going from the idea, the very premise of the story, which Patricia, you said, you know, it's the idea. The idea is the human thing. We can't depend on AI to create a whole premise for a story that sings to other humans. So that kind of top of the funnel from the idea, the mission statement, the plot arc, the character arc into like the scene by scene level, that sort of organization I have a hard time thinking that AI would be able to put all those pieces together. And I do have it. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I do have a great article here uh, from the book designer that breaks down a Marlowe report. Um, so you can see the sort of thing that Marlowe AI spits out. And it really can be very, very useful, but it does take just this broad strokes approach of how, what percentage of your manuscript is dialogue versus narrative, you know, and it says, um, you want to be between 25% and 35% dialogue, for example. So it kind of, it, it takes what its rubric is and it sees how you measure up, um, based on criteria that you've inputted into it and designed for it to sort of analyze things against. That's how you train an AI from my very limited understanding. Um, but then is is the training of the AI biased? Who is inputting the training? Are they the ones that have ultimate authority over what makes a good book? You know, we can get into these other ideas and these bigger questions there as well. Does anyone have any thoughts on what I just rambled for about half an hour?
2: <laughs> well, I'll take a quick shot at it because again, more synergies between the three of us. So my grandsons, hes my, my 10-year-old's not recruited the eight-year-old to help us do book two. So I call it hurting kangaroos. <clears throat> trying to work with two, a 10-year-old and eight-year-old. So, but both of them could articulate the funnel because that's what they've been taught. So, I, we, we use the funnel in business when we're evaluating, let's say, opportunities. And I've taught them that that's how we evaluate ideas together. So they throw in some crazy idea into the wide part of the funnel. I throw in my crazy idea. And then we've got to, you know, explore it, validate it, compromise. (laughs) And then we come up with one that we finally decide, okay, it's a shape shifting dragon girl. But, but that, um, that funnel approach also fits another thing that I've done, which I haven't taught the kids, <laughs> but when I'm teaching leaders, I teach this concept of being at 30,000 feet, the treetop and the weeds. Okay. So if I'm flying and I'm running the organization, I'm at 30,000 feet. <clears throat> I'm not going to, I'm not going to succeed by only staying at 30,000 feet. Right. So I got to come down sometimes to the treetop level and then I go back up and then I sometimes come down to the weeds and I go back up. So a micromanager never goes back up. But but it struck me, back to your world, Mary, that when I think about you, I think about you as my strategic editor, right? So I'm, I'm really working with you strategically. I'm not working with you to copy, edit, or to proofread. And I think that's where it fits the discussion of a computer, because I think that the proofreading, the weeds, we can use you know our basic spell check, grammar check, things like that. We started kind of getting into a little bit of the treetops with a Pro Writing Aid or Hemingway or Grammarly or whatever. But will any of them actually do the strategic editing? And I just am very skeptical about that. (laughs) At least, at least my view of this at this stage of the game. So I kind of laugh because my friends who have the company, right? So when we started this, not just four years ago, but ten years ago, we started working with big data. (laughs) And so so they really so algorithms underpin the whole thing. Right, so the big data initially was just taking robust sets of data and then reaching in and bringing things out. Right, so that's what I think about the find and replace. Then we began to move into artificial intelligence. Well, I I was kind of laughing this morning. I thought de facto there's a problem because it's artificial, (laughs) right? Why? Why would we think it's intelligent because it's artificial? It's
0: right there. Well, both are right there in the name, though. Exactly. Artificial, yes, but intelligence, yes. (laughs) Exactly.
2: But my friends now, I noticed, because, I, because I'm advising them, I'm watching their language shift. So now they're talking about intelligent computing, <laughs> right? So so that tells me that they're trying to get away from the concept of AI because they're trying to create a more sophisticated approach. And And that more sophisticated approach gets into meaning because right now they're not really getting into meaning, right? So when we think about content, meaning, the either the, the big data, the, the rudimentary part of this, or the AI is again, finding and replacing keywords. What I think about is rule-based bu- rule programming, right? So those are all the underpinnings of the left side, but the right side, the intelligent computing is meaning, making recommendations and decisions, not just doing keywords, but phrases, sentences, paragraphs. And then not just doing what I think about rule-based programming, but relational programming. And then in your world, Mary, it's deeper editing, right? Because right now they're not really doing deeper editing. So, so anyway, so that's kind of my, does that make sense? So that's kind of my view of the three tiers of this, right? So if I want to be in the weeds, I can use spell check proofreading. If I want to be at the treetop, I could use something that's quasi AI, because I'm still not sure they're all that far advanced, but I'm certainly not going to be using a computer when I could be using Mary Cole. Ah. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much. But I love the three tier analysis that you've given. And it looks like Patricia, you have some thoughts, too.
1: Uh, yeah. So I was just going, so yeah, everything you said is, is I, I can understand how, you know, what you, what you mean and how you're perceiving that approach. And, uh, and every writer has a different approach. And, um, uh, but when I go back to, for example, you know, Marlowe being able to provide um, this analytical um, analysis of whether or not a novel is going to have I mean, basically that that kind of software would be used for for um, commercial profitability, right? So if you are programming that um, to find what the next, you know, who the next James Patterson, Neil Gaiman, Dan Brown, Dean Coots or Stephen King, that's probably a great piece of software if that's your intention, right? Because you would have those analytics in there and those types of authors probably do stick to those kind of structural um I I don't want to call them, you know, formulas, but there is, there are structures to novels. It is a formula.
0: Like people shy away from the idea of formula and I'm so sorry to over talk you, but when we, when we plug into this sort of like, I I love Jessica Brody. I developed a character class for her, for the Writing Mastery Academy, but her Save the Cat um, beat sheet has been called a formula. And there are a lot of other plotting formulas. You know, you have to get to the inciting incident by the 5% mark, that sort of thing. There are formulas that people use to sort of overlay a creative story on top of.
1: And I shamelessly use them.
0: Yeah, I mean they—they they help, right? Why
1: reinvent the wheel if you don't have to? <laughs> no, exactly, I, and they do have—they do have value. But again, it's that interpretive—you know, what what do I need from from my work? Um, so what I was. So what I was going to say was, if you're looking at, say for example, these you know best-selling authors, and say for example, we do take that you know they they have a you know analytical analytical criteria for 25 to 35 percent dialogue. That's great, but then you're going to miss out on all the wonderful outliers, and they would become outliers. Books like *Annihilation*, *The Martian*, *The Art of Racing in the Rain*. Those are books that are unusual in their lack of dialogue because because of the circumstances of, well, Art of Racing the Rain, it's told from a dog's perspective, right? The Martian, the guys, he's trapped on, he's trapped on, you know, on Mars, right? Just talking to himself on Mars. Like he's talking to himself. Yeah. And, you know, so a lot of that's internal dialogue and, you know, what he's going through and there is some dialogue with Earth and him talking to himself, but it's nowhere near what you get in a, you know, in a complex earthly situation where you've got people everywhere. Um, And Annihilation, same thing. It's like, man, I was reading that book for like, I don't know, it seemed like 30 pages Just before anyone spoke, but it was engaging and intriguing, and it was science fiction, and I loved it. And but but those books, if you used that that particular metric, would it would be an outlier, and it would be lost. And and that's where, you know, you don't um, where AI can't can't find that connection. It wouldn't be able to. It wouldn't be able to see past its algorithm being or its criteria being deficient because it only understands what's the criteria um so it loses meaning and to add on to that i'm just going to say skynet cuz we're all thinking it
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you oh you're um,
2: welcome
0: so i I love that point, um, and it goes back to what I was thinking earlier in terms of like, well, the person programming and training the AR is then the arbiter of taste, right? And in the case of Marlowe and the bestseller code, this was based on kind of a, a control group of 100 bestselling novels that were used to sort of develop the criteria, then train this Marlowe AI model. Um, but it's like, yeah, so do we want to give the arbitration of what makes a great book over to this one rather uh, inflexible way of seeing things? Because then some beloved stories that have actually done well uh, in the marketplace um, would not fit that criteria and Marlowe probably would have bounced them, you know? so it's it's this framework just like a plot formula is a framework just like uh this list of emotions that i'm holding in my hand um is a framework but it's the intelligent application of the framework you know that i think really really puts humans ahead <laughs> of this this whole race to uh the artificial Um, artificially intelligent creation of creative work. Uh, Goodness, that was a mouthful. Rick, what are you thinking?
2: I lived in Silicon Valley for 12 years, and I would not have any of the people I grew up with writing creative books. If you go to the right side, and those are the people that are developing the tools to help us move forward in literature, then I would be very alarmed. And so anyway, so I think that's, that's kind of my thought is that and the formulaic part of this is, you know, my friend and I have studied thrillers for a decade before we decided to do mid-grade two years ago. And there's a formula. Well, I can, I can, I'm I i not going to b- mention anybody's name, but we studied under some of the top best-selling thriller writers. And, you know, after, after we've read several of the books, we could have probably written the 10th or 15th book. And, you know, they get into that groove and that's fine. Doesn't mean we can all do, this, do it exactly the same way, but I have, you know, when I think about the the formula, again, it's not a mathematical equation. I think it's a construct, right? So I've read probably 50 kids' books in the last two years, so I can tell you exactly what's going to happen with Rick Riordan. I'm, you know, I'm an expert on John Flanagan. We've got The Wings of Fire, The Land of Stories, right? So, they, you know, it doesn't mean I can necessarily write the books or I wouldn't be getting... All these uh, challenges for Mary. If I could write the books like them, but I've got a, I've got actually a funny story which actually ties to TV. So during the, the uh, lockdown, I've spent a year of watching Hallmark rom-coms with my wife. We've been married 46 years. And so so we've been watching Hallmark (laughs) rom-coms and being an analytical person, we grade them after each one and I keep track of it. But anyways, but we've been watching these rom-coms. So this past week is kind of hilarious because we watched a chef show that I taped for her and we both really liked it, right? We both gave it four stars and we said, yeah, this works. So then we had the exact same actress, a very similar leading guy and what seemed like a good story. And we finished that last night. <laughs> I said to her, okay, well, how would you rate it? And she said, if it weren't for the puppies, I'd give it a one. And so, so the whole <laughs> the whole thing then was the the motif was what I think about was, was really a puppy show, right? So the find and replace story elements, right? They thought, oh, well, we had all these multi-dynamic emotional elements of the ship show, right? Well, we're just going to cut and paste and we're going to put in puppies. Well, it just didn't work, right? Because the <laughs> puppies were cute, but there was no conflict. There was no, there was no emotional draw. And obviously we both gave it a one instead of a four. But, but uh, the last thing I'll tell you is, is, is not related to this, but it's related to story structure, which could be a different topic another day. So when we first started watching the rom-coms, I would stop the, the, um, the remote because I wanted to see where we were in the course of the two hours. Right, and so mm. in the beginning it ticked her off, and so so so. But 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 by at some point she's not <laughs> she's now come to the point after fifty rom coms that she, that I'm right, and that is they follow a formula. So we click the button at twenty five percent, and there's a pivot. Then we put it on pause. <laughs> we put it on pause at fifty percent, and then the big problem has come up. And then we stop it It's 75% and it's the all is lost moment. And it's almost invariable. <laughs> <laughs> and so now she, now she lets me do it because she agrees with me that, okay, yeah, there is a formula. <laughs> so that's the danger of save the cat and the hero's journey is that once you learn the formula, it ruins. it actually takes a lot of the fun away of, of trying mm-hmm. to do that. So then my last thing I'll say is, is actually, again, very funny is that a, can a computer replace a skilled author who's really going to take the leap creatively, right? And you know, when Patricia was talking about about the different uh, books that came out, would they have passed the Marlowe test? I was thinking about Cold Mountain, but anyways. But but there's a a an, a fantasy writer that I've been studying. His name is Brandon Sanderson. So he's he's the next mm-hmm. G R R Martin. And um, he's done adult books, uh, mid grade, YA, etc. So he's got this series that I really like, and it's it's called the Mistborn series. So it's in this medieval era where the people have all these wild superpowers, right? So he does the trilogy on that, and then he ends it. And then I've I noticed on his you know his his catalog that he's got two books from the Wild West, and I thought. I don't think I've ever read a Wild West book. (laughs) So that that does not interest me at all. And I love the Mistborn series. I just find it hard to believe how you're going to 300 years later, put it into a Wild West setting. Okay, so I've been reading it for the last week. I'm on about page 100 and I love it. (laughs) It is so clever. It is beyond the pale of creativity. But but could a computer do that? Right, could, could a computer go from a medieval era with superpowers to the wild west with superpowers? I'm not so sure.
0: <laughs> I love it. Um so let's go to Patricia and then I I could keep talking to the two of you. I'm so glad that I brought you together. Um, but we do have to wrap up, Patricia. What are what are your parting thoughts here about writing tools, AI, creativity, left brain, right brain, anything?
1: Uh, so, in terms of you know what an AI can do, uh, can you teach an AI to write a symphony? you probably could, but it's not going to be a Mozart and it's not going to be a Beethoven or a Tchaikovsky. Uh, That's, that's what I believe now. Um, who knows 20, 30 years in the future or sooner that may be completely, you know, erroneous as a belief. Um, in terms of the creative process, I totally believe what Rick was saying about, you know, the complex integrated nature of creativity and it being nonlinear. Like I, I write my character with a wound first, I come up with, I conceive of that, and then I write an ending. I know what my ending is because I know where they have to grow. Then I have to go back and put in a good mid plot, midpoint twist, and then I go back and I do, you know, how how are they going to get to the midpoint twist, you know, in Act Two? How are they going to resolve it in the second part of Act Two? Um, and then I go back and write my Act One. I act, I write my Act One after everything else because that's how my brain works, and it's it's completely messed up and i but i have talked with other writers who have processes that are just as messed up um in terms of being non-linear it's (laughs) it's how it comes to you and how it works for you um and you know the structure whether it's rom-com or uh you know or comedy or a dramedy uh uh this identifying this structure is the easy point the the hard part is Is taking your creative process, which I said for me is you know almost backwards and nonlinear, then applying the structure in a way that works and and making it work and doing that on a consistent basis. And no computer can do that. I just don't believe it. Um and that's and that's where I'll end. (laughs) Great.
0: Thank you so much. And I I oh I love this topic. I've loved this conversation. I have to say that I uh I definitely resonate with that. You know, who knows? We may be proven wrong in short order here, but I don't know. I just don't think that... I think art and creativity are such human, inherently human things that I am not so quick to want to see them replaced by robots. (laughs) And I'm also not so quick to see some of these writing tools, like the Emotion Thesaurus, which I have a newfound respect for. Thank you, Patricia. um, Replace the hard work of actually figuring out as novelists how to put emotion on the page. Also a little bit of hope for Rick there. You heard Patricia, she actually does the beginning first. So you going back to your first chapter, I actually am not surprised at all. So it's all about how we work our way through with the tools that we have, but we still have to do the hard work, I think is the end point. Rick Williams, Patricia Faithful, thank you so much for joining me for this sort of uh, town hall debate on writing tools. Um, And it has been a pleasure having you. And here's to a good story. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Good Story Podcast with your host Mary Cole. I want to give a huge shout out to everyone at The Good Story Company. You can find us online at goodstorycompany.com. And the team is Amy Holland, Amy Wilson, Jenna Van Roy, Kate Elsinger, Kathy Martinolich, Kristen Overman, Mikael Leah, Rhiannon Richardson, and Steve Reese. Also a shout out to our Patreon supporters. And to everyone listening out there, here's to a good story.